have your Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you don't, you have a bulletin insert with the text on the back of it. I wonder sometimes if um, Timothy felt like he was involved in a real-life game of chess, but, you know, instead of being a rook or a bishop or a knight or something, he was just a, a pawn. We, we gather from Paul's writings to Timothy that he was not the type of man that would lead a charge into battle. We do learn about him over time that he was a man of strength, but conflict was not his first choice, probably not his second either. Uh, Nevertheless, Ephesus was a church plagued by false teaching, plagued by a lack of godliness and all the fallout that resulted from those things and all the problems that it had meant that Timothy's life there as a pastor would be characterized by constant conflict. Um, Apparently there were elders looking down on him because he was young Uh, According to chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, some of them, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, had sinned against their own consciences and shipwrecked their faith and tossed out the gospel completely. He had false teachers there that were obsessed with endless genealogies, irreverent, silly myths in chapter 1, verse 4 and 4, verse 7. And the false gospel they preached was one of life-denying asceticism or self-denial as the means to the righteousness that actually pleased God, 1, 3 to 4, and 4, 1 through 7. Adding to all of that, as we learn reading First and Second Timothy together, is the issue of uh, some women in the church that he calls in Second Timothy weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Second Timothy 3, 6, and 7, that have been undermining the biblical order of the church. That was given in chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. So again, as, as Kent Hughes says, Timothy is on this chessboard of theological and relational confusion. The churches in Ephesus had not been well cared for prior to his arrival. The leadership was bad. They were losing their center. The main things had stopped being the main things. The gospel and the mission were being increasingly marginalized. And when that happens often, very good things become the main things. Things like the church's care for widows. The church was apparently uh, taking on the responsibility of caring for too many widows. Any and every widow they could find. This is a very particular problem they had, even those who weren't a part of the church at all. So this is instructive. This is a very practical and timely passage for the church in America today, because the church is increasingly obsessed with solving all of society's woes and trying to fix everything and repair everything. And Paul tells Timothy, you have to rein it in. You have to focus on the message of salvation and its practical implications, but your focus is on the people in front of you. So that means confrontation was going to be necessary. Timothy needed to command and teach some very hard things, causing some big changes. But Paul knew that. And so he'd been giving Timothy what he needed to survive all of this. Godliness, the word of God, giftedness, diligence, a godly life, a godly doctrine. And here Paul teaches him how to relate to the people in his church when he has to tell them hard things. And also how to best care for the widows so that the main things remain the main things. What emerges here is not just a manual for the church to properly care for its widows, though, 
but another revelation of God's heart for his people. These letters to the church are so important for us because we're learning through them what the heart of God is really like. This is what the pastorals present to us, what he desires for us, what he desires for the world, because he is the savior of all people, especially those who believe the household of God must care for the members of its family, especially those who cannot help themselves. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your people. And God, I ask that for your name, for your word, for your Son and his glory in our midst, and for our salvation and faith, you would overcome all that I am, that I might preach your word in truth. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, and that you would open every ear to hear. Amen. Let me read the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So when one of the older men in the church was wrong, somebody older than Timothy, older than any preaching elder, was wrong and needed to be confronted or rebuked, Timothy is not to do so in a posture of superiority or even of anger, sinful anger, but of respect. Encourage him as you would a father. So it's not to be a tongue lashing. Timothy should probably feel uncomfortable doing it. Imagine having to rebuke your own dad and the hesitancy you would feel in that. That's the spirit that needs to be taken on. That should shape his approach and tone so that he acts accordingly. It is not right. For a younger elder to dress down an older man in the church, uh, tone is of the utmost importance, Paul is saying. <clears throat> and God gives us the proper consideration to treat people in the church with the appropriate amount of respect when he makes the frame of reference the family, right? Think of him as you would a father. Fathers deserve from their children a certain amount of respect. That's the way it is when things are healthy, right? To younger men, Paul writes, exhort them also as you would your family, these as your own brothers, in the case of them being younger, horizontally. Older women are to be addressed as mothers in the church. So if a rebuke is in order, he was to do it as a loving son to his own mother. Again, imagine the care with which you would speak to your mother if there was something you had to correct, biblically speaking, younger women are to be ministered to as sisters, he says, in all purity, literally chastity. Brothers are not usually into kissing their sisters at all, and at the same time would jump up in a moment to defend them. We have this in our house. Little Carmine is nine years old. He has three older sisters, but he would fight to the death for them, but he also can't stand them. Right? So it's just, that's just the way it is in the house. But Timothy was, there, there's something in that of how young women should be treated by an elder in the church. Timothy was to treat young women in the church with the same purity and protectiveness with which he would treat his own sister. Beloved, the tone of the church then is that of a family, even in the case of correction. This is also how, again, one ought to behave in the household of God, the family 
of God, chapter 3, verse 15. There is a sense of <clears throat> deference, right, of respect and love, kindness that characterizes all of our interactions, or at least needs to characterize all our interactions. I thank God for the timeliness of this text this morning. We're in a very strange time right now with masks and social distancing, this new phrase we have to keep using, and it gets confusing, it gets frustrating. But as the family of God, we defer to one another. The governor has given a mask mandate for churches, so we seek to honor that and respect it. We're not being asked yet to compromise our faith. If that day comes, if a mandate is given by our governor or our president that we cannot preach the gospel, then we'll become civil disobedience, right? But not until. But this right now is a matter of care and deference for one another. The, the largest demographic in our church here, which is the only church I'm responsible for, the only church I will give an account for, is over 60. Now, I know, I imagine we can all agree that much of the information we're getting is either overblown or flat-out deceptive. I understand all that. But we should also be able to agree on the fact that there is a virus. It's out there. And elderly people, as well as immune-deficient people, of which we also have several, are particularly susceptible to it, not just if they come, but if people that do come take it back to them. For that reason, for that reason, we'll try to honor this mask mandate until the governor loosens it up. We do that here for the sake of one another. We surrender our personal rights a long time ago. I know that we're Americans I know that we have rights given to us by the Constitution. I don't dispute those things. I'm saying as a member of the household of God, though, we don't talk like that. We defer to one another. There are people here to be cared for as though they were our own family. I would not want to take any risks with my own dad. And so I have to let that color what? We do the decisions we make or my mom. Right. And so that's a part of how this text is meant to work with those concerns in mind in precisely a situation like this one. This is new to us, even though it's you know going on seven months old now. So here we will do that simply because that's what the situation calls for. This is an opportunity for us to prove to one another that we think of each other more importantly than ourselves. I'm not saying it isn't frustrating. I'm not saying it isn't inconvenient. I'm not saying it doesn't get old. It is and it does. But masks are not the hill to die on. These temporary changes to our schedule, to our activities, it is not ideal in any way, shape, or form, but it's not the hill to die on. That hill will present itself when the time is right, beloved. And I think together... We'll die on it. But this isn't it. It just isn't it. We have a calling to each other. A calling to each other. And what this text reveals by following directly after the argument he's been making in chapters 3 and 4 is that godliness, our behavior as the church, the household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, is related first and foremost to that which reveals Christ. But secondly, it's related secondly 
to our treatment of one another. That's where godliness is ultimately most clearly going to be revealed. This is the kind of conduct that will adorn the gospel and cause it to go out from us unhindered. The statement we need to make right now is not that nobody's going to tell us what to do. The statement we need to make right now is that we love each other deeply, even when times are not easy. This will cause the gospel to go out from us unhindered. So we don't even want to treat each other in a way that would be unbecoming of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Since, remember, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All kinds of people, all ages of people, beloved. So he makes provision for each of them uniquely where they are to be cared for as a part of his body, the church. This brings Paul to his instruction on the care of widows in the church in particular. Right? It moves right from that into this. This should make us perk up because God has been adamant about the care of widows since the very beginning of the word, beloved. As the manifestation of God's heart for salvation in the world, the church now, we don't cut ourselves off from this overriding biblical concern that's always been there. Rather, we are the living embodiment of it now for the world to see. God is the defender of widows. He calls himself Psalm 68, 5, 146, 9, Deuteronomy 10, 18, Proverbs 15, 25. God is angry with those who take advantage of widows. Exodus 22, 22. Magistrates who ripped off widows would be judged. Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 27, 19. Farmers were to leave gleanings in their fields for widows. Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, 24, 19, 26, 12 and 13. Prophets regularly complained about how nations abused widows instead of protecting them. And that was a mark of how far their society had fallen. Isaiah 1, 17 and 23. Jeremiah 7, 5, 22, 3. Ezekiel 22, 7. Zechariah 7, 10. Malachi 3, 5. Psalm 94, 1. Pure and undefiled religion in the Bible is measured by one's attitude towards orphans and widows. James 1, 27. Jesus, our Lord, when he was here, Raised a widow's son from the dead, lauded a widow's giving of her mites. In other words, the treatment of widows is something God is deeply committed to. Therefore, the church must be also. That text we, we've referenced so much in the study from Acts 6 about deacons and elders reveals that the early church took that very seriously. It was just a part of what they did right out of the gate. They had a daily distribution for widows among them. And apparently what has happened here is that the care for widows is such a great concern in the church that too many were being taken care of by the church and there were no guidelines at all to the degree that those who truly needed to be cared for were not being cared for, were being overlooked. So let's read verses 3 through 8 here. Paul writes, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well 
so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There, these are tough instructions. They, they, they get tougher. We, we can understand why Paul would start with the instructions he gave in verses 1 and 2. Because all of the people in the church will need to be treated with love and respect. The love and respect of family in all of this. And you can hear. You can hear Paul's primary concern is for those who are truly widows. Truly widows. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 16. To honor them. In the text means to give them the proper recognition, which includes both care and financial support. In verse 5, the widow who is truly a widow, what does he mean by that? Is defined as one who is genuinely all alone. She has no family to support her. I think this would mean in our culture that nothing has even been left to her by her husband, or maybe not enough for her to live on has been left to her, or whatever the situation may be. But what we're learning is that simply being a widow did not automatically qualify a woman for support in the church. It was only if she was destitute, without resources, without the customary dowry that would have been provided in that culture to her by her husband, and no family that could help her. But there was a second qualification. She also had to be characterized by godliness in verse 4 and following. Pick up in verse 5 again. He says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. Now, given that deacons are charged first and foremost at their inception in Acts 6 with the care of widows, I do think the elders' oversight of the deacons means that they charge them with caring mainly for widows. I I think that's what we're seeing in Scripture, which includes determining those widows that qualify so that none of them are left out in the cold. They at least need to be aware of all the widows in the church and who's supposed to be caring for them. In fact, this may be the primary responsibility the deacons have in a church is really the care of the widows. The family of God is apparently a place where there will be a lot of them. It it, it seems like that's what's being implied, at least in Ephesus. The most instructions given for specific service in the Bible are given regarding widows. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, this is extremely practical and specific and detailed. In turn, what's happening is, is when the deacons are able to follow these instructions, then they're able to correctly discern who they should and shouldn't be helping. The only widows who qualify for church support are those who qualified financially because they were destitute and spiritually because they were godly. Now, what about the widows among them that didn't qualify based on those things? Does the church just not care about them? Are they to be left out in the cold? No, they were to be taken care of by their families, provided that they have Christian families in the church which is given as a positive thing back in verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. God has created a world, remember, where certain rhythms exist. 
Certain things are just woven into the fabric of creation. One of those things is that those who care for us when we are helpless as babies are then cared for by us when they are helpless as adults. That's a rhythm of Creation, that's the circle in which we live. God is well aware of it, and God means to provide care for us in it. When sons and daughters do this, they are simply making some return to their parents. It's going to become very relevant in a few moments that even the world does this. Even people that aren't Christians take care of their parents, which will become a very important frame of reference here in a moment. I do want to say this. To you, Moundsville Baptist Church, you excel in this. You are wonderful at this church family. So many of you take such wonderful care of your ailing parents. I see that, but more importantly, God sees that. And he is honored by you in this, beloved. God bless those of you in that situation. It's not easy. But you are not alone. It is pleasing in the sight of God. I want to say this to you on a personal note. This is the kindest, most welcoming and gracious giving family my family and I have ever been a part of. I'm not preaching this text to you because you are failing in this. I'm preaching it to you because five follows four and we're going through Timothy. But it is Edifying and important for us to know these things, yes, but if John was writing a letter to Moundsville Baptist Church in Revelation, he wouldn't have anything bad to say about you. I love this church. I'm so thankful to be a part of it. And I'm not buttering you up because I have something really mean to say in a minute. I, I don't. <laughs> I just was thinking of, of you as I'm, I'm, I'm studying this, preaching this, what this church is like, and I've experienced something here I've never experienced before. You make me want to be a better pastor. You make me want to be a better husband to my wife and a better dad to my kids. Because I want to be what the Bible calls me to be. You make me want that, if that makes sense at all. And I'm just, I'm I'm very thankful for that. This church is a wonderful group of people. I had a Pleasure of doing another wedding last night for uh, Marcus and Hannah, uh, Mark Winters II and his fiance now his wife Hannah at Ogilvy, and it's just wonderful to be around the people in our church. It's it's um, it's such a blessed family. Our, our our little faith community here. I wish you could see this about yourselves. Is primed for gospel impact in this valley. We really are. That doesn't rely on technique and flash and fanfare. It relies on people whose hearts are fixed on Christ. When you have that, you have everything. So, yeah, maybe during COVID the church looks poor to the world, but you are rich, and I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. I just I just don't want you to walk away from this text feeling beat up by it. If, if it needs to beat us up, then let it be. But I... I I don't think this is a major issue for us. I'm sure we could do better, right, in, in certain things, no question, but overall. Now, notice now the negative side of this in verse 8, because this is very, very powerful here. Listen to verse 8. Just hear this passage. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, 
and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are powerful words inspired by the Holy Spirit. Powerful words here. In other words, Paul is saying, look, the pagans in the Roman Empire, they take care of their parents. They take care of their moms when their dads pass away. They do that, and they're pagans. If the household of God doesn't do that, they are worse than unbelievers. It's to act worse than a person who professes no faith. This is the only place the Bible talks like this. That you know what really makes you worse than an unbeliever? How do you get worse than an unbeliever? How do you get worse than that? Well, you leave your parents out in the cold when they need you. That's an amazing passage. Of all the things God could say make you worse than an unbeliever, it's not taking care of your own family. How vital then, just think about this for a minute, how vital to the order and survival of society must the traditional family be that God would talk like this about it. How strong is the metaphor then for the church that God sees us as a Family, because this is being written to the church also, and how it cares for its family. You want to look like you're worse than a pagan? Don't take care of your family. Right? It, it, nothing apparently looks more unchristlike than to not care for those who cannot care for themselves. That's an amazing thing to read in the Bible. Christian sons and daughters are responsible for the care of widows as well as helpless parents and grandparents. This is the rhythm. Culture is different today. We fully understand that, understand that than it was in the first century Roman Empire, right? We have resources they didn't have. I know we have social security. We have retirement. We, we, at least we have social security today, but we have retirement funds. We have investments. All those are good things. Nothing wrong with those things at all. God can be honored in those things, but Christian children are to care for their parents, regardless of those things. And if financial provision isn't necessary, there is still an obligation for loving care, right? At least our presence, if, if, if there's nothing else that is needed. Emotional neglect and abandonment wouldn't be acceptable either. And I, I, I say that I want to be sensitive to different family things and concerns. I'm, I'm, I understand all that, or at least that... That can make that very difficult, right? If there's history or somebody's very difficult, I, I fully understand that. But what we're talking about in the text is an overall attitude towards our parents. It's amazing to watch. And I've, I've seen with many of you caring for your parents when they don't even really realize that you're doing that. And, and the, 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 the weight that is borne by the caregiver in a relationship can, can almost take out a healthy person and, and, kill them slowly over time. And to watch children care for their parents when their parents can't even recognize it is a powerful thing. A powerful thing and a very, very apparently important thing. People like this exist in every congregation and they are to be cared for by the church. We need to care for those who, particularly who have no resources or ability. Right Today I think that would include women and children who have been abandoned by an unbelieving husband. Single moms, godly single moms trying their best also 
need to be cared for by the church. That's also our responsibility. Now, let's move into verses 9 through 16, where I think Paul is picking up on something separate from this care for widows. Let's, let's read these verses. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. Again, one woman man, or one man woman here. It's a character trait of faithfulness. And having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now, I don't think these are additional qualifications to be on a roll for financial aid from the church if a woman is a widow. I think this is a separate thing. I think this is a registry of widows who would meet certain qualifications for service in the church. Now their service to the church, not their care from the church, is what he's talking about here. I believe that's what he means by enrolled, bringing up a separate subject, separate category. Otherwise... Many godly women, for one thing, without financial means, would be left out in the cold by this, which we know is not God's intention from what we've read so far. There are three qualifications for older widows to serve, right? Age, they have to be 60 or older, faithfulness, and good works. 60 was the cultural age, apparently, for retirement. Also the age when remarriage became unlikely. Right, So that makes it an ideal age for a widow to commit herself to singleness and Christian ministry in the church. She was a one-man woman. She'd been faithful in her marriage. Or if she'd been remarried after one husband passed or whatever, but she was a faithful woman. She had raised children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. Again, so many... Of the women in our church are like this, right? They just are. In other words, she had obeyed the instructions to women, specifically those who were married back in chapters 2 and 3. Younger widows, this is where it gets interesting. Don't be mad at me, all right? Be mad at Paul, all right? I'm just kidding. Don't be mad at Paul. Younger widows, 59 and under. Isn't this amazing how specific this is? 59 and under are excluded from this registry. Why is that, Paul? Well, because to be included on this list of widows meant pledging oneself not to remarry. And that is a heavy burden, apparently, for many younger women. Right? I don't say that because they're weak and they need a man to rescue them. It's just, it's just it's the way it is, right? The younger you are, the more likely it is that you want to be remarried. Older women have had enough of men, generally. We're good. We're fine, Right? But this is a heavy burden for many younger women. It's just heavier. And if they're being fully supported by the church, if all their needs are being met by the church, they no longer have to live, right? They don't have to be busy. They don't have to work at all. Leaving them, as Paul is saying here, more open 
to certain sins. This was apparently what was happening in Ephesus in verse 15, which is why Paul is addressing it in the first place. The adversary in verse 14 here is most likely an unbelieving person outside the church who sees these things happening and speaks poorly of the church, runs the church down because of it. Many of these younger widows in Ephesus were becoming gossips and idlers and busybodies. In other words, they're talking like these false teachers have been talking. Paul isn't saying in verse 11 that younger widows wanting to remarry is categorically a departure from Christ overall. He'll approve of remarriage just a few verses down. What he's talking about here is those that want to get remarried simply for selfish or fleshly reasons causing them to abandon their faith. So we read later in verse 14 that will be best for them rather than being celibate and enrolled for Christian service, which will bring about too much temptation. What would be better for them is to remarry for healthy reasons, godly ones, as listed in verse 14, that will qualify her as time goes on for when she becomes a widow again and is older. Ladies, these are godly prescriptions for femininity. And they are nothing to be mocked at. They are nothing to be ashamed of. Nothing. This is how a woman is honorable in the sight of God, beloved. In a day of Hillary Clinton's and Cardi B's and Instagram and Facebook, young ladies desire the commendation of God not men and not women. Pursue God. I say that as a father of three teenage girls and a little boy who will one day care what women think. Ladies, pursue God. I'm not talking down to you. I'm not mansplaining. All right, I'm trying to tell you the word of God. You are not a trophy for men. You have been given dignity by your creator to exist and to live and to thrive as a woman. And God is trying to tell you how one way these things can be done. Singleness is addressed elsewhere and it's nothing to be ashamed of and it's not a sin. This text is talking about ways God can be honored. In other words, don't find your identity from the culture. Don't find your identity in Christ you you don't need people you don't know to approve of you. Look to Christ. The same could be said to men, absolutely, in all kinds of different ways. It's just the text is addressing ladies here. Of course, the feminist movement of today, which is built on the foundation of being able to kill your baby in the womb, be as manly as you desire, be like men, like that's the goal. It's a perversion of this. It hates this. Well, it comes from God. Of course they hate it. It comes from their creator. They've been trying to get out from under his image since the dawn of time. But ladies, these are not the words of a chauvinist who doesn't believe in the dignity or equality of women. This is coming to you from the one who made women in his own image to bring him glory as a woman. Trust him. Mothers and sisters of mine, trust him. Young ladies and older. Paul advised Timothy in the midst of this 
powder keggies in to deliver his exhortations wisely, humbly, with respect, based on gender and age. God so cares for his people. What an amazing thing that the creator of the universe, who is sovereign, would want to shape the tone of how the people in his church are spoken to. This is an amazing thing. Paul's instructions for the widows are exactly what the church in Ephesus needed to place the gospel of Christ and the heart of God for sinners back at the center of the church. The number of widows they would support would be reduced to those who qualified spiritually and financially, right? The Bible is very responsible in how it approaches the use of the church's money. Ladies who desired to serve could do so. As they met the qualifications, they were given dignity then as full members of the household of God to serve according to their desire, according to their means, their giftedness. If younger women desire to remarry, Paul says, do that. Embrace all of life for the glory of God. Christian families were reminded of their responsibilities to one another, strengthening the family, making sure that none were left out in the cold. All of these things would adorn the gospel in the midst of the Roman Empire. And they will also adorn the gospel in the midst of the American empire. When the things the Bible puts front and center are the things we put front and center also. Back in 315, Paul called the church the household of God. In verse 8, Paul revealed that if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The text reveals that not only are we obligated to take care of our own flesh and blood, but of one another in the church, or we have completely lost our testimony as the church of Jesus Christ. That's what verse 8 is also saying. As the household of the living God. If this household, also a family, more so than blood, won't take care of its own, That church is anathema. It's worse than an unbelieving group of people. You wouldn't even be a church if you didn't take care of those in your church that couldn't take care of themselves, Paul is saying. Beloved, why does God take this charge so seriously? Verse 8 reveals that this is one of the most serious charges in all of Scripture. But what is has this text revealed about the heart of God? What has the coming of Jesus Christ into our world revealed about the God who saves? That our God is relentlessly committed to helping those who cannot help themselves. That is who our God is. That's the family name. When his church does this, that's when its practice truly adorns its message. The household of God must care for the members of its family, especially those who cannot help themselves. In verse 4, this is another thing that Paul says is pleasing in the sight of God. The same God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Our God cares for widows who are truly widows. Those who have no resource, no ability, no means. And when I said those words, did any of that resonate 
with any of you personally. No resource, no ability, no means. What do we learn about God and his deep concern for widows? That widows are physically what all people are spiritually before God. We had nothing. We had no hope. We had no means, no ability whatsoever to save ourselves. We were without God, without hope. We were bankrupt in our sin. We had nothing, no one who could be our substitute, no one who could redeem us. And what did God do? Did he leave us in that state? Did he ignore us? Did he wish us well? No. God sent provision from heaven for us. His only begotten son. And it is this heart that is to be reflected in the way the church cares for its own, who cannot care for themselves. It is that important. right? The the pastoral letters are for the church, not only so the church can know who she is and what she must do, but to learn all those instructions are because of who God is and wants to be known as. He is the Savior of those who are in genuine, hopeless, helpless need. And everything the church is and the way it acts towards each other and who it helps and how it helps is meant to display this is who God is. You're meant to see it in everything we are and everything we say and in everything we do. This is what God is like. He moved heaven and earth to help those who cannot help themselves. Every time you hear that phrase, you remember that that was me and God. That was you and God. I could not help myself. I couldn't reach my bootstraps because I didn't have any boots. And he did it all. The pastoral letters are for the church. This is our story. This is our song. That God is the Savior of those in genuine need. So as the text bankrupts you and I this morning, if that's what it's doing. As we are convicted maybe as a family member who knows they're not helping and supporting their own family as they should. As a family member who's burnt out doing all that they can and doesn't know how they're going to make it through the next month, let alone the next year. Or maybe... For those in our church that are burdened by a lack of care for widows, if that's what's on your heart, don't turn away. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Beloved, why? Well, because when your sin makes you aware of your unworthiness and the fact that you have nothing you can contribute to God's care for you, That's when you know you are one that he cares for. So go to him. Beloved, if you have sins that need to be repented of, go to him. Go to him. Tell him. I blew it again. I have nothing to barter with here. I'm completely dependent on your provision, on your mercy, on your son's blood and your son's righteousness. He will not turn you away.
You are his child. Go to him. Go to him. He is a savior and provider, especially of those who believe. Go to him. God helps those who cannot help themselves. These instructions for the church to be a household are because it's there that God's heart as a father and a husband and a provider will most clearly be revealed in the gospel. And it's not something he does to get a plaque to hang on his wall. This is who he is. He always has been and he always will be. He just provides. Beloved, he provides. Till the oceans run dry. He is our provider. He cares. He saves. And he is our savior this morning. The savior and provider of Moundsville Baptist Church. So let us know him and love one another because of it. By the grace of God Almighty, our Lord and Savior together. Amen. Let me pray. Look to Christ. We pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the provision of your Son, Jesus Christ, for those of us who could not help ourselves. Father, I pray that every person in this room, every person that hears this message will be brought by your Spirit to the end of his or her rope to know that only God can save, only God can forgive, And wash it away. Only God can grant us the righteousness necessary to stand in his presence. Father, we look to you. Deepen the heart of our church for one another. Lord, may your word shape your people here. May you take loaves and fish and multiply them exponentially for each other and for Moundsville and Glendale and everywhere around it. We thank you, Father, for the time you've given us this morning. We thank you for your word. And we pray and ask these things as we go. Watch over your people. Watch over every person and family. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.